Welcome to Machine Learning. I've noticed that there's been quite a few uh, posts on on machine learning that uh, is advertising that you can make lots of money in it. And uh, I still think that uh, when I look at the machine learning aspects of it, it's either in the marketing realm or it's in the manufacturing realm that they're applying machine learning. I don't see machine learning in very many other places. Um, I know that there's a lot of startups that are, are looking to, to move machine learning into to businesses. But it's still, it's still one of those type of things that people are very confused about what it, it is and what it can do for them. But I was talking to my daughter last night and, you know, about the psychology of improvement. And she was talking about, you know, trying to come up with motivational ways to improve her team. And I said, I remember when I was in the Air Force and we had this contest between the different groups to create widgets. And one group was trying to use psychology to motivate people to produce a better widget. And then when you think about it, the fighter pilots, they solved the problem. They got the best widgets. And the way they got the best widgets is they build a machine. And that that tells you something about the way to improve things is to automate it or build a machine and that's the way we've always done things you know with food production to building cars when I look at cars and all the different varieties that there are and how reliable vehicles are uh, I'm left to believe that yeah we do build machines to improve our quality of life and so why wouldn't we build a machine that can uh, it can handle large numbers of roles, make decisions, classify things, uh, and improve. So it it um, it may not be something that we understand. I mean, there might be some people that understand it, but maybe as a general group, we don't understand how the machine that uh, accomplished its task. For example, let me give you a case in point with Codex. We start with Codex and uh, we ask it, tell it, give it specific instructions to code certain things. And sometimes Codex will come up with a solution that's really quite novel. I remember I was doing something with curve fitting and it came up with um, a polynomial feature combined with a linear regressor. And so I was like, wow, yeah, I could under- see how it, it would choose that as the pattern. So I, uh, I implemented it and it worked. And uh, it, it just goes to show you that the machine solutions could be something that you didn't think of. Because um, most of the curve fitting that I had seen before had used things like polynomial feature and maybe a Bayesian or um, 
yeah, in the case where I was doing the COVID, I used the Bayesian curve fit. So we we uh, we may not understand exactly why the machine chose the path that it did, only that whether it, it works or not works. And that's what I'm thinking with self-driving cars too, is that we don't understand all the the nuances of why the car did what it did. We only care that it works. And that's been really largely the success story of computer programming is that we don't know all the technologies behind the uh, computer software. We just know that it works and, and that's how we get our work done. And it's becoming more and more important. I was actually talking to a colleague in the hallway and and we were talking about the importance of IT and he was stressing that he felt that an IT department was very critical to the company, that things had changed, you know, that there's no way that a company can operate without an IT department. And uh, the most important thing for him was email. And I, you know, and I, and I look at uh, some of the uh, NLP startups that are, are helping people write emails, summarize the content that is in emails, uh, check for spam, etc. But one of the things that they, they want to do is they, you know, they don't want to spend half a day writing an email. So they, they uh, use the AI to help compose the email with the correspondence and you know, create the nice narratives that uh, people then will read. And it looks like that they spend a lot of time writing back an email. It's grammatically correct. It's understandable. And so the AI actually helps them save time. So they're implementing the AI for email correspondence. So as we see more of this uh, correspondence by AI, it's, it's going to be even more challenging to know if the person actually wrote the email or not. And then uh, let's say that it was automated and, and then the person's having a conversation with the, the person that the email received and he says, oh yeah, you said this and this and this in your email. And, um, you know, there's, there could be an element of surprise because you, you're like, well, yeah, but I didn't really read the email and I just, it said it was sent out and that's not really correct. Well, and those, those kind of connotations and distortions are going to be common in our future as we rely on AI to do more, more things. Just like the other day I was uh, telling Siri to, or YouTube to find Michael Jackson, and it thought I said uh, Philip Jackson. So I got all this information on Philip Jackson, and I wanted Michael Jackson. So these are the things that are... Are, are kind of challenging when it comes to uh, AI and trying to understand AI. Um, and it's, um, it's importance to the financial world. The AI tends to be uh, 
necessary for automation. And so if you look at the workflows and things like that, it's going to be a part of these adaptive workflows so that you can set up some specific things that you want AI to be able to accomplish. And within that workflow, the AI will improve that correspondence. You know, it's interesting because you have a lot of cold calling. It used to be where people would call and talk to you and, and then follow up and, you know, do a lot of lead generations and things like that. And the AI could do the exact same thing, especially if it understood conversation and it was talking to you and, you know, the whole dialogue of that conversation was being recorded. And, though, and if there was, uh, you know, the ones, conversations that are not necessarily fruitful, you know, you don't, you don't pay attention to, but the conversations that actually could lead to a sell or, or to a service, then uh, those conversations become more important. And, and then they, and that could also then be kind of like then given to a human being who could then follow up and close the sale or, the, or complete the service contract. But it may be in the future that, that uh, the computer does the service contract too. So I was thinking about that as I was walking around is the world that we're going to be getting into will be kind of a perfect world because it has to fit within the machine perfection. So once we enter into like buying a house, the machine will go through all the paperwork, all the document will be generated, you do the docu-signs, and you know, it may reduce the closing time from hours down to minutes where you go through and complete all the agreements and the AI can summarize, answer any of the questions that you might have, and you don't even have to go into the into the uh, title house. You can do it all remote, and you can take ownership of your home through DocuSign and through maybe GPT-3. That's one of the things that I'm going to look into to see if any of the real estate companies are using GPT-3 to help automate their uh, closing process. So you still have the all the legal documentation, but you don't have as the, the uh, you don't have to have a human being there who's giving you all the paperwork, etc. It's all could be automated in the pipeline. Well, you know, and I was talking to also to my son-in-law, and we were talking about these shortages supply shortages supposedly that are occurring and it's it's showing you the need the areas that needed automated to begin with because there shouldn't be a shortage in a day and age of high tech and so that means that the companies that are facing automation like Amazon or or Walmart or or any of the big companies um, they need to focus in on why they don't have automation in those particular parts of the logis- the logistic pipeline. Look from that could be from loading trucks to uh, warehouse ad- automation to uh, the uh, boxing and assembling of the 
of the different parts. And so that anywhere where there's the human connection probably needs to be replaced with automation. And that's just going to be the natural flow of things in our world as, as machines become more prevalent in the manufacturing and distribution and logistics chain line. And the companies that, that will make this adaption and investment today will be the companies that survive tomorrow because COVID's going to be around for 20 years. And it's not, you know, as much as people want to think that maybe next year that it'll be over, it hasn't been over. It's been over two years and, and there's no decline yet in the number of cases. So um, it's, it's just, uh, I think it's illusionary to believe that it won't run at least 20 years. So it's going to be a much longer problem. And so the investment into technology now makes sense. Um, that will mean that there will be a larger displacement of workers as uh, they move more towards uh, entitlements and government benefits to survive. But those won't last forever. And so there, there will be a need to retrain and reskill into the, the data science, science realms and understanding uh, now instead of uh, mechanical uh, workflows, they need to understand digital data workflows. And they'll get trained in the new technologies and software and, and how business uh, will be done. You know, it's interesting, like in some large uh, distribution centers where they use small robots that carry boxes uh, with things, contents, and then they put those contents in over cells and, and, and they drop that off on the floor. And so this floor is, uh, is kind of like a, a highway of robots moving about, dropping off their content. It's really quite a brilliant move to have that much automation occurring simultaneously. So it goes to show that robots and computers can network and they communicate together. And the engineering is sophisticated enough that, um, that it can provide a reliable uh, set of services that would maybe require hundreds of people. Now, I have brought up the point that the natural language processing seems to be very poor, and but I think that's going to change because we now have, I saw the Cerebrus now came online with a cloud server. Uh, it combined, partnered with, a, with one of the uh, cloud provider with opti fiber optics, and now it's uh, making its supercomputer accessible to uh, companies that are willing to pay to use their machine. So, you know, it's interesting to see what companies will do with that level of compute power and what kind of, uh, what kind of problems that they will start to, um, to tackle. And so our world as we move into more automation will definitely change. Um, and uh, that's uh, something that 
hopefully we can um, we can we can adapt to I'm sure when people first saw the airplane that they were confused whether or not it would be safe to fly in the air and then eventually as more and more people began to commute over larger distances across continents that that uh, the the percentage reliability was high enough that they weren't confused and uh, they they weren't afraid to fly I know I'm going to be flying over the ocean in a few weeks and you know it's uh, something that I think that will be quite an experience you know realizing that you have miles and miles of water underneath you and kind of what that will mean in terms of of you know my own sense of of orientation but then you know you you think about how planes are designed you, you know you're reading magazines you're reading books listening to movies you know it's relatively fairly it's relatively comfortable while you're in flight and you know you're you're flying for one hour two hours sometimes three four and it's 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 pretty comfortable and I think that the AI will be a lot like that is that you know as we start to rely upon AI more we'll we'll understand that that we depend on it um, we don't yet depend on AI to drive us to locations but we use AI to communicate with our devices we use AI to find directions um, we have use AI to find definitions but we don't use AI to make conversations with, and that is very expensive. I found that was a, an interesting fact about AI is that uh, that you can have conversational AI and it will communicate with you, but it would cost you about thirty dollars a day to have a conversational AI. So. In order to get a conversational AI that's cost-effective right now, let's say that you know you I created a conversational AI right now using a a web API connection to GPT-3, and then I use GPT-3 to talk to my subscribers. How much would I need to charge them per month? Well, I need to charge them a thousand dollars a month. And then they could have unlimited conversation with AI. So, see, that's an interesting thing is, you know, would, would people be willing to spend $1,000 a month to have a conversation with AI? And the AI, you know, if you get too, uh, you get too negative or derogatory towards it, has to say goodbye. It'll, it'll tell you bye. So it's not like you can continue to have arguments and 
and, and express anger towards AI, um, it'll remember your context and your conversation. So, you know, there's going to be some subscribers that are going to be frustrated because the AI won't talk to them. And, and those are factors that in your business model that you'd have to consider, is that not all AI will continue to have conversations with people. So then the question again is, who's the AI for? Well, it, it, again, it, it migrates towards the wealthy. Um, and so, you know, these YouTube gimmicks about GPT-3 are, are actually not for the common person to have conversations with GPT-3, but for the wealthy. And so, the, you know, the question is, is what would someone who could afford $1,000 a month for a conversational AI be talking about? Well, they, they might be talking about their social life. They might be talking about uh, business connections. They might be talking about work. And... Or they might even just be talking about entertainment because the wealthy have more time for leisure and they want to, maybe they, they travel more. So they would be talking about different things that they, places that they visited, foods that they had tried. They might be talking in different languages. So, so that, that in, introduces a, a new domain that GPT-3 would need to be trained on is for that customer base that is willing to pay $1,000 a month for conversational AI. Well, and then, you know, you look at the political things that are going on, and GPT-3 doesn't want to talk about politics. And, and because you're the, bio, the dangers of... Uh, uh, political realities and political parties that, you know, AI could influence the election. It could influence people's uh, direction that they want to, that, that they were willing, they will vote. And so those are, those are factors that make political discussions with GPT-3 not very popular. And then you have the political that can lead to military where you have militant discussions and the GPT-3 has to recognize when conversations become controversial. And so it has to stay away from those type of conversations. And you can't think that the GPT-3 will, can just be reprogrammed. They don't take the neural net offline. They don't reset the neural net. And so, even if you have a lo localized GPD-3, if it connects into the hive mind, uh, that AI piece is constantly being improved upon and enhanced. Well, and we've seen how uh, we've seen how Sophia, the robot, does with her natural language processing, and how her conversational capabilities have improved. Now, if you took the original AI, it, it couldn't understand some of the lingo or the 
subtle nuances of the languages where people shorten uh, things and get more connotative and abstract in the way they talk. A lot of times I hear when people are talking around the cafeteria that they are expressing a lot of emotion and they're only saying a few sentences that actually convey information in their conversation. Most of it's just small talk and, and, and uh, you know, expressing, expressing frustration or emotional uh, dislike. And then there's a few sentences in their conversation that are actually informational as to what occurred. So people have to know kind of the context of what's going on to understand uh, why the person says what they do. And even in the work world, there's a lot of acronyms and there's shortening of sentences and there's a lot of having to know kind of the context of that conversation and what they're trying to do to understand what the problems are. I ran into that the other day with one of my bosses. I was having a discussion about a SSRS bug that I found. And it took a little while to figure out that it was a bug because assumed that it would work. And that was that the data source in the data set didn't update when I uploaded it. And so it was pointing to the development data, not the production data. And and it would, took me a long time to figure out that that's what had happened because uh, it, it just, the behavior was really strange. I kept thinking that uh, there was problems in the data. And so once I proved that there weren't problems in the data, that the data was different between the two queries, then I was able to figure out that there was a problem in the data set or the data uh, set was pointing to the wrong data source. But when I was having that conversation, there was another person listening in, and he kept interjecting these things, these statements that were, like, very frustrating because they didn't even explain what was going on, and they... um, were just kind of command-like decisions, and that was very disturbing. Because you're trying to solve a problem, and then you're getting these interjections that don't really mean anything. And uh, and that's kind of the imprecision of human language, and the way we, you know, when we talk with the machine, and you try to take the way the machine. Uh, receives its instructions and bring that up to the the business world there's a huge gap there's like an ocean gap but yet we we make our money in the business world so we continue to uh, we continue to work in that realm and so these are these are things that I think are really important for us to understand as we um, as we try to get uh, 
familiar with the, the way our world is changing. Because if we think that our world is not changing, that things are going to stay the same, uh, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So basically, we sin. <laughs> um, and, and that may become out of fear. That may be coming out of the fear of the unknown. And so we need to be thinking about the unknown, the, the way the AI will transform our lives, how we'll start seeing more companies that are, are beginning to uh, anticipate now this digital change, this, the, the way we're going to change the way we interact with things. Um, I, I talked about yesterday about the digital ink, the way, you know, we have signs and, and that are non-digital. We can have digital signs now that, are, that we can see that are giving, transmitting information. We can have uh, uh, information transmitted from the sign to our, our cars. There's a lot of things that are going to change. And so information is not going to be just these symbols that we see around us and that are difficult to understand. We may actually interact with those symbols like, uh, you know, when we we go to a kiosk or a a retail map and, and a shopping center. You know, you're looking for a specific type of things, you know. Uh, why doesn't the why doesn't the shopping center have a search engine that's NLP driven? So there's a there's a market there for a company to create a startup to build shopping mall directories that have NLP search. So you go up to the directory and say, "I'm looking for a flannel shirt. What uh, stores?" sell flannel shirts searches through its uh, catalog there's a a company I forgot the name of it but it's it was connected to most of the most of the the cataloging it built its own proprietary database and then it used a NLP search engine uh, driven off Wikipedia to do category categories and from those categories then they were built the search engine that most of the large companies, when you go to their websites, um, uh, Indeca, Indeca, maybe it was called Indeca. Um, when you go to their their search engine, it uses the categories built by this NLP company. And uh, they use their own proprietary algorithms for determining the categories that the data would be in. And then, you know, it got adopted in most of the e-commerce world that we were saying, well, this is really good. This is a really good search engine. It, it finds the, uh, the par- parts by category really effectively. But yet when you go into a shopping center or a large mall, you know, there isn't there anywhere where you have a search engine. You have to go to maybe an information center or you just wander around. And it's amazing that you don't have kiosks 
everywhere that have search engines for people to find things. It's almost as if they don't want you to find competitor comparables. That they want you to just uh, come to their store and by brand recognition be able to find what you want. So if I'm if I'm looking for a flannel shirt and I like Nordstrom's, I go to Nordstrom's. Or if I like Dillard's, I go to Dillard's. If I like Kohl's, I go to Kohl's. And and they have kind of these signs up that say, here we are. Come into our store. And maybe at that point you have then salespeople who can come up to you and ask you what you want. And and the retailer or the shopping mall president doesn't really or facility doesn't really want to it just wants to charge companies that are there it doesn't necessarily want to help them improve uh, their sales by So, you know, it's kind of like uh, the old bazaars where, you know, you just wander around and you buy things when you see something that catches your eye. So it's kind of that same mentality of shopping that, you know, you just put the things that you have out for sale. And as people are wandering by, they see what they, something that catches their attention, they buy it. But in an age with AI, it, it doesn't really make sense to do it that way. So you could you could uh, use the same search engines that you have on e-commerce and put those in as kiosks uh, in in uh, stores. Well, the other day I was looking at uh, buying a miter saw and. I went and looked at, we went online and it said you needed a, a 10 inch blade or circular uh, saw blade with 82. And we looked around and we found one for DeWalt that was an 82 circular blade. And, but it said DeWalt on it and I was buying a uh, Craftsman. saw and so I had to find someone to answer whether or not that blade would work and I finally had someone walk over and he said yeah they're universal they're all they'll all fit and you just need to um, you just need to put it put it on and so I, there was, wasn't a problem when I took, put the blade on, everything worked great, and it uh, was universal, so there was this universal component way of putting on the blade, so those are, those are things that uh, I think could have been improved by AI, would have definitely saved me some time but 
the store, had someone who was an expert there who knew a lot about hardware and he could answer that question. Now, if there wasn't anyone in the store that had that level of knowledge, then uh, I would have been in trouble because I would have probably then said, well, I better buy the DeWalt, not the the uh, Skillcraft and gone that way. So um, those are considerations to have thought about.